please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Uh, my name is Brian Ginto, not Brian McNeil. I feel like she's doing this on purpose. Anyways, um, we will be continuing um, our series on the book of Philippians. Uh, our sermon text this morning comes from Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's on page 981. Uh, but before we turn there, I'll keep your finger there, uh, let us turn to Exodus 16 for our Old Testament reading. We'll be reading verses 1 through 9. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's on page 58. Exodus 16, verse 1 through 9. Uh, Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus, uh, this is God's holy, infallible, and abiding word uh, given for his glory and for our good. Uh, Give your full attention to it. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that, uh, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger." Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you uh, in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that your grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Let's turn now to Philippians 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I re- and rejoice with you all. Likewise, 
you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Uh, Grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. O Lord our God, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, By way of introduction, uh, let me rehearse a few things so far. Uh, Paul is picking up where he left off. Uh, Paul is still unfolding what it means uh, by his statement, only live as citizens of heaven worthy of the good news. So far, he has exhorted the Philippians to stand firm side by side together, to stand firm in the midst of outside oppression, in the midst of great suffering, and to consider one another more significant than themselves. And so then Paul went on to rehearse the gospel story of the Lord Jesus, of which we saw last time. How Jesus, became, uh, how Jesus, being the form of God, took on the form of a servant. He obeyed and he humbled himself even unto death, death on a cross. And so for Paul, we are to reflect the humble life of Jesus Christ as we strive to live with one another in unity. Uh, These verses, verses 12 through 18, then, are continuing what Paul has been saying. And with that in mind, here's what I wanted to highlight in our passage this morning. Uh, We display Christ's unselfish humility to the world when we refuse the temptation to grumble against one another. I'll say that again. We display Christ's unselfish humility to the world when we, when we refuse the temptation to grumble against one another. And so Paul begins by saying, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I remember Paul has spent time with these believers. Paul knows them personally. And more than that, he loves them very deeply. My beloved, he calls them. And Paul witnessed uh, their obedience while he was with them. He saw their commitment and their submission to the Lord Jesus and his gospel. Obedience. uh, That harkens back to what Paul just said said about Jesus in verse 8. Uh, Jesus, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, the Philippians were living in such a way consistent with that good news. And Paul wants to remind them of that. Because that kind of obedience was a very good thing for Paul. Because for Paul, obedience is not just some cold checklist It's allegiance and devotion to Jesus. It's Jesus' lordship over your life. It's about whether someone is following Jesus or not. 
So Paul is reminding them of their past obedience. When I was with you, I saw your allegiance to Jesus. You obeyed in my presence. Now keep going. Don't turn back. And just because I'm not with you, obey that much more. Uh, Paul's address to the Philippians here is in in stark contrast with Moses' final address to Israel. I mean, do you remember that um, Exodus generation? And we'll reflect on them a little bit more later. But listen to what Moses tells them before he dies. Uh, This is from Deuteronomy 31. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? I mean, did you catch that? That generation was not obedient at all. They were rebellious even while Moses was alive. I mean, no wonder Moses was so frustrated with them. And it seemed uh, like Moses himself was grumbling against them. These people are so rebellious, even in my presence. Uh, But not so with Paul. Paul's encouraged, and he wants to encourage them and nurture their obedience. Paul goes on to explain what obedience looks like. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, Paul says. That's the kind of obedience he wishes for them to continue in his absence. At this point, our Protestant reform ears should be perking up, right? Many of us might feel uncomfortable with Paul's language here. And so let me just be clear. Paul doesn't mean that we can somehow work our way into salvation. That's not in Paul. That's not in the Bible. Let's get that out of our head. From beginning to end... Salvation is of grace. I mean, think about it this way. If salvation is found in the gospel, if salvation is wrapped up in who Jesus is and what he has done for us, then the Philippians, to earn their salvation, it would be impossible. And it's impossible for us. Because the Philippians, as well as us, we're already recipients of that salvation. Paul made this clear in chapter 1, verse, 7, uh, verse 27. Uh, He says there that they're striving, the Philippians is striving side by side for the gospel, being brave against their opponents. It's a sign of the Philippians' salvation, which Paul makes clear is from God. It's a sign of their salvation, and it is from God. And so what is Paul talking about here? What do you mean, work out your, your own salvation, Paul? Paul is talking about the way we live in light of already having received salvation, already received the gospel. It's a theme Paul obsesses over and over in this letter because he desires believers to respond appropriately to Christ and what he has done. Uh, That's why he says in that same verse, only let your citizenship of heaven be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's why Paul just painstakingly labored to tell us about the humble life of Jesus. He wants us to strive to look more and more like the humble Jesus 
in the present, how we live together until the day of Christ when the culmination of our salvation appears. And here's what I want us to notice too. Paul's command here is not primarily about you, singular. Paul has a whole community in his sights because this is still about standing firm together in the gospel. So whatever Paul means by work out your own salvation, it happens in the context of community. I mean, it's pretty clear from the text. Your is plural. Work out y'all's own salvation. You all. Then he'll address them um, in verse 15 as children of God. Right? It's collective, communal. And so as a community... As you live out your salvation together, whatever you're doing, do it with fear and trembling, Paul says. Uh, This probably has to do with our posture before God. And so the psalmist uh, says this, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. That's the kind of posture Paul wants in the church, a posture of humility before God. Because how we are before God informs the way we will be together and how we work out our salvation together. At this point, uh, you might be tempted to despair uh, because this seems to be an impossible task for any believing community. And it is. If we think we're good enough, we've already failed at working out our salvation together. Uh, No wonder it's done in fear and trembling before God. But Paul has good news for us. Paul says in verse 13, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work out, uh, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's the Calvinistic side of Paul, isn't it? Um, And so our demonstration of our salvation as a community does not ultimately come from our own power or goodness. We work. We work out of dependency, never out of our sufficiency. Uh, This is, after all, how Paul started his letter to them, to the Philippians. Uh, Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And of course, this is not a new idea in Paul. Paul is constantly pointing out God's working behind our working. Uh, take, for instance, uh, Ephesians. Ephesians 1.11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Uh, But here's what it means that God is willing and working through us. Uh, What it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean we're puppets. That we should be passive in all that we do. No. God calls us to work and to obey. As Paul is calling the Philippians to work and to obey. But we work knowing that we have a Father that that supplies all of our needs that he is 
at work behind our working. After all, we are his work. I like how one writer said it. He said, God is in control, but he doesn't want us to lean on a shovel and pray for a hole. Isn't that good? Right? God supplies our energy, our strength, but he doesn't want us to be passive, to sit on our butts and and do nothing. He works through us. And notice what Paul says. God wills and works for his good pleasure. God is delighted to do his work in our church. God doesn't do it with a frowning face. He does it with joy. Imagine that. A father longing for his children to work out their salvation with delight in his face. Uh, What Paul goes on to say in verse 14 is somewhat surprising. Uh, He says, do all things without grumbling and disputing. I mean, why do I think that's surprising? Uh, Because we don't immediately attach without grumbling and disputing with working out our salvation with fear and trembling. How is salvation worked out in a community of believers? For Paul, it starts with controlling our tongues. Because someone who is always grumbling is someone who is discontent, ungrateful, and impatient. And someone who is uh, constantly disputing is a one-upper. They just have to assert themselves and have their way over people. A grumbling or disputing person, uh, to use Paul's vocabulary, doesn't count others more significant than himself. Don't be like that in how you live together, Paul says. Because it's contrary to what your salvation looks like in Christ. Because your salvation began with a Savior that counted others more significant than himself. And so let me ask this. Why do we grumble and dispute among ourselves? James posed that same question. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Do you not have, you do not have because you do not ask. And so for James, at the core of our grumbling is a selfish heart, a heart that wants to be served. And when it doesn't get what it wants, what does it do? It lashes out. It expresses itself in tongue, in the way we speak. You know, the generation that God delivered from Egypt is quite famous for this. Over and over again, we're told that they grumbled. If you murmured against their leaders, Moses and Aaron, and soon everyone in the assembly was murmuring. Because murmuring, grumbling, is a cancer to a community. Why did the people grumble? Well, because they didn't get what they wanted. They were unholy dissatisfied with their condition. I mean, they were out of Egypt, 
but they couldn't have meat. Bring us back to Egypt. At least there we had meat. We had melons, onions, and leeks. I mean, did you bring us all the way out here to kill us, Moses? I mean, think about that for a second. That was a generation that experienced God's great salvation from Egypt. They saw all of God's miracles. They were delivered from their enemies, yet they were still dissatisfied. They still could not trust, uh, they still could not trust God to provide for them. You know what that tells us? God takes our grumbling seriously. I mean, you know how I know that? Because God did not let that generation enter the promised land. Do you know that when we grumble or dispute among ourselves, we're actually doing it against the God? Whether it's your leaders or um, your fellow congregants. When you grumble or dispute with them, you're actually grumbling with God. That generation kept complaining to Moses and Aaron. But listen to what Moses said to them. The Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Friends, I want you to take that to heart. Grumbling is not a small offense to the Lord. Because it's ultimately an accusing finger pointed against God. And so let us remember that when we murmur underneath our breath against other people. We're actually doing it against God. Let me just put a a plug for hospitality for a moment. Uh, Because I think opening our homes... And not just our homes, but also our hearts to others, nurtures a kind of anti grumbling community. When we get to know one another on a deeper level, when we are vulnerable with one another, we can begin to heal from the pain of discontentment and bitterness. I think it's part of the reason Peter says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling making space and time for one another. It kills that attitude of grumbling. So let us make space and time for each other that we might not grumble against one another. Because the closer you get to each other, the more we won't be dissatisfied with them. And so when we say no to grumbling and disputing. According to Paul, we prove ourselves to be God's children. And as his children, we reflect that innocence and faultlessness of Jesus, the true son and firstborn of God. Uh, Paul puts it like this in verse 15, uh, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. (sighs) I love my son with all of my heart. I can't imagine life without him. But man, he has been so pouty lately. You know, he's that stage five clinger, 
at the moment. You won't let us put him down without complaining and grumbling. I mean, like, all, I think all he does is whine all the time. I mean, parents, tell us it gets easier. I say that not to make fun of my son. Uh, I say that because I think Paul knew this about children. You don't have to teach your children how to complain or grumble. That's just what they do, you know? They grumble when they don't get what they want, crying and complaining. But here's what's cool. Paul calls those who say no to grumbling children of God. Listen, God wants us to be childlike in faith, but not childish in our behavior. Someone who's always complaining or arguing is still childish. And Paul says, that's not what God's children are like. But when we behave like God's children, Paul says we shine like stars in the world without fault in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Uh, Paul again is reflecting on that wilderness generation, that grumbling and rebellious generation. Uh, This is actually taken, this language of crooked and twisted generation, it's actually taken from Moses' song to Israel before he died. Uh, Listen to what he said in Deuteronomy uh, 32. Uh, They have dealt corruptly with him, God. Uh, They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They They are a crooked and twisted generation. Did you hear that? The very ones that God delivered became corrupt. They did not trust God They grumbled, and Moses concludes that that generation were no longer God's children. That's that's heavy. That's heavy. Our grumbling, our grumbling is serious before the Lord. Moses said they are no longer God's children because they were rebellious, corrupt, and kept grumbling. Yet if you know the Lord, the Lord is faithful to his promises, his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yes, that generation was disobedient, but God's promises to Israel continued. Right? Paul, Paul is an Israelite, so he's an example that God's promises still continued. And so the psalmist instructed later Israelites this from Psalm uh, 78. Hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Uh, Beloved, the works of God are more powerful than man's stubbornness. That's good news. And that's the message uh, that brings life into this dark world, isn't it? And so it's very fitting that Paul describes the children of God as holding fast the word of life. Because it is an apt description in light of his call not to grumble or dispute. I mean, it's hard to complain when, when you're clinging tightly to that word, 
to that word that brings life. And so we need to make it a habit to constantly read, listen, and to reflect what God says in His Word so that we might not be tempted to grumble against each other and God. We need to hold fast to that Word, the Word that reminds us of all of God's promises to us in Christ. Uh, For Paul, even though the Philippians were already blameless children of God, even though they were already shining as lights in the world in their working out their salvation, they still needed to live out their calling to the end. They still needed to persevere. And that's why Paul says, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. You see, Paul's work is wrapped up in their work, in their obedience. And when history comes to a conclusion, he wants to boast in their faithfulness and obedience to Christ. You know what that is? That's investment. Paul is entirely invested in his people. Ah. I wish we were like that towards one another, right? And you see that in, the, in his following statement. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. Paul was willing to lay down his life as a sacrificial offering for them. He likens himself as a priest in service pouring out himself as a drink offering to God on their behalf. But there's also mutual sacrifice going on here. Uh, Paul was willing to give himself up, but he also acknowledges their own sacrificial faith. Paul's offering is on top of their faith. Here's a congregation that were presenting their bodies as a living sacrifice, as Paul taught in Romans 12. And this all leads to a major theme in Philippians. You know what that is? Joy. There should be mutual rejoicing as believers experience together their mutual sacrifice for Christ. Notice what Paul says, I am glad and rejoice with you all Likewise, you, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Guys, don't let your obedience, your sacrificial offering, make you a sourpuss. Take joy in what God is doing and through you. By the way, that's a command. Rejoice with me, right? That's a command. Be glad and rejoice, Paul says. Now, that sounds simplistic. Like, Paul, you're telling us to rejoice. I mean, can I control that? It sounds simplistic, but it's incredibly profound. Because to take joy in our sacrificial service to one another requires one thing. It requires looking to Jesus over and over again. It requires constant reflection in what Jesus has done for us. 
That's the only way we can take joy in the midst of our sacrifice. When we are hurting and are in pain, is to look to Jesus. That's why Paul says, rejoice. Because Jesus Christ is the one who worked out our salvation. He earned it for us. He obeyed knowing that his Father's will and good pleasure was behind it. Jesus did not come to grumble and dispute with others when he had nothing. Because for him, it was more blessed to give than to receive. And Jesus was the light of the world that drove away the darkness. Not by asserting himself, but by laying down his life for us. The joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Jesus denied himself to offer himself as a sacrificial, as our sacrificial lamb. Jesus' blood was poured out as a drink offering for us so that Jesus can present us holy and blameless before God. I mean, he did it for the very ones who would grumble against him. Beloved, may that good news enter your hearts and spill out into the relationships that you have with each other. Uh, Let me close with this reflection. I think deep down, we grumble because we we think we deserve more. That we're entitled to the things that we don't have. And so long as we don't have, we tend to take it out on others. It's always somebody else's fault, never ours, right? And we end up hurting people with what we say. And so I'll say this, with myself included, let's stop trying to always find fault in others because that's what what we're doing when we are constantly complaining and grumbling. We are trying to find fault in other people. And so if we want to be a community that reflects our salvation in Christ, then we have to set aside our grumbling against one another. For many of us, nothing we do collectively is ever good enough, let alone what individuals do. And so we need to humble ourselves and look to Jesus. And so even when it's someone else's fault, we can exercise patience with one another's shortcomings, each other's failures and sins. Brothers and sisters, let us strive to forgive what seems unforgivable in others because our Savior did the same for us. Uh, The Lord, the Lord had an answer to that wilderness generation and their grumbling. What did he do? He showered them with bread from heaven. He rained down bread so they can eat And stop complaining and be satisfied. I mean, that's often the only way to get us to be quiet. With food in our mouths. You know? When we have food in our mouths, it's hard to grumble. 
But of course, that generation's complaining kept going. But God wants us to learn from their failures. And so this morning, God gives us bread and wine to quiet our grumbling. In John 6, Jesus told his disciples to drink his blood and eat his flesh. And you know what happened? His people grumbled, saying, How can this man give us flesh, his flesh to eat? And Jesus responded, This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. My friends, this meal is a reminder that you have all that you need in Jesus Christ. You have eternal life. And so cast aside all of your grumblings because God is never stingy with you. Amen. I'd like to invite um, our elders and Pastor Brett to come that we might partake of this meal. Let us pray. Our Lord and Savior God, we thank you for your most holy word, the word that gives us life. You gave it to us for your glory and for our good, and so help us to meditate on it and reflect on it all the week long. May your word be like a hammer that breaks the rock to pieces. May we fear you and tremble before you that we might honor Christ in all that we do. Help us to look more and more like our humble Savior. We pray in the name of him who bled and died for sinners and complainers, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.